This week on the Back Table Podcast. And, you know, the, the point that you made about the nick and the skin, I think, is also a very good one, um, which I neglected to mention. I mean, you're right. That is a very, very tapered sheath, you know, for an 018 system, and it slips in pretty easily through the skin. Um, so it's almost, you know, making a nick is, is really unnecessary. Um, you know, there those people like myself that do it just because we're just used to doing it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, then if you don't make a nick, you can use the hashtag without a scalpel. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. All right. Hello and welcome to the Backtable podcast. Backtable is your resource to connect with your IR colleagues and learn tips, techniques, and the ins and outs of the devices in your cabinets. You can find all our previous episodes of the podcast and more on our free iTunes app. This is Mike Barraza returning as your host. Today's podcast is brought to you by Surefire Medical. Surefire has the only expandable tip catheter to help physicians maintain blood flow while reducing reflux during chemoembolization and radioembolization. The Surefire infusion system helps interventional radiologists deliver therapy deeper into tumors while protecting healthy tissues. Learn more at surefiremedical.com. I'm joined today by Chris Beck and Jason Iannicelli to debate femoral versus radial access for oncologic embolization procedures. Um, obviously, this isn't a novel topic, but uh, it's a contentious one with strong arguments to be made for each. Uh, and really, the only people who I think are wrong are the ones who still describe radial access as a, a gimmick or a fad. Or my, my personal favorite that I've heard is uh, it's calling it a parlor trick. Um, so whichever is better, femoral radial is a matter of opinion and circumstance. But radial is here to stay, and that's a fact. And there's a burgeoning pool of data to support its use. Um, so before we really get into that debate, let's start with some introductions. Um, Jason, could you tell us who you are, um, where you are, and what you're currently doing in terms of transarterial cancer therapy? Sure, absolutely. Um, so uh, just to backtrack here, in terms of training, uh, I, I uh, completed my radiology residency at uh, Brown Medical School, uh, did an IR fellowship at UCLA, Ronald Reagan Medical Center, uh, graduated that in 2011, and then joined up with Rhode Island Medical Imaging um, as an affiliate um, associated with Brown Medical School in Providence, Rhode Island. I've been with that group for about seven years, um, currently the division chief of interventional radiology since 2014. And uh, we just recently established an interventional oncology division um, back in uh, 2016. So I've been at that for uh, almost two years now uh, as the director. My group, uh, Rhode Island Medical Imaging, is a hybrid practice. It's um, a private practice that has an academic affiliation. We do have about 70 physician partners. Um, nine IRs, three NIRs, very busy group. We cover five hospitals. Um, the hospital I practice at, Rhode Island Hospital, is the largest. It's a level one trauma center, a major stroke center. Um, for a non-transplant hospital, we actually uh, see a fair amount of interventional oncology practice. Um, we perform about 180 ablations per year and about 150 IA treatments. Um, we do do mostly uh, drug-eluting beads for taste, but some conventional taste. Um, we do Y90, both surspheres and Therospheres, as well as various combination therapies. Um, we do do some bland embolization and some intraarterial ethanol, uh, mainly for renal cell carcinomas that uh, would have a contraindication to ablation. Okay. Chris, uh, now your turn. You're no stranger to the podcast, but for the sake of the newer listeners, uh, tell us your story, please, and what your transarterial cancer practice looks like. Sure. Uh, thanks, Michael. So uh, my name is Chris Beck, uh, Interventional Radiology. Uh, I'm in a, a strictly private practice group, uh, primarily based in uh, southern Louisiana. I primarily work at uh, 
a hospital called uh, Turo Infirmary um, in New Orleans. <clears throat> and our interventional oncology practice is, um, you know, we're not a transplant hospital, so it's mainly uh, metastatic, uh, colorectal, or neuroendocrine, for which, um, you know, our treatments range for anywhere between deb taste, conventional taste, and Y90. We're, we're exclusively doing uh, Therospheres for no other reason than one of my partners came from uh, UF, and we just selected, you know, glass because we thought it would uh, simplify the process for our technologists. Yeah, that's mine as well. Uh, interestingly, uh, for a similar matter of convenience, we are using exclusively surspheres where I am. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of hoping to expand to more glass to mix it up. But we, uh, we're not a transplant center either. And so um, we are predominantly Y90. It's, it's actually pretty uncommon to do chemoembolization here. Uh, now, Chris, what's your preferred access site for these procedures and why? So uh, for me, I most uh, always go uh, femoral access. And I guess, you know, when I was kind of like making some notes on this podcast, um, I have all kinds of like small reasons why I go femoral. But I think the like when I as I was like kind of making some notes on this, the real reason that I go femoral is just, you know, I have a high level of comfort with femoral access, have a good feel for um, when the access is going right, when there's something off. And, um, you know, all the, all the working catheters that I use, um, or, or have access to, not that we couldn't get other ones, um, uh, just are all kind of like your, you know, there's so many uh, reverse curve catheters that, uh, come in, uh, uh, kind of just common practice for us to use. Um, and so it ends up being femoral access. Um, and I think that like, if I had to really get down to the base of it, it's probably just cause I feel comfortable with that overall, but you know, some of the like smaller reasons like, uh, that I, that I use, uh, femoral access. We have uh, a couple different, uh, cath labs that we work in, um, both at my main hospital and satellite hospital. And they're set up for, it, it's just the, the rooms are built for femoral access. And so if ever do a, a radial access case, um, and we can kind of get into the nuts and bolts and Jason may have some, uh, good tips to, to help facilitate it, but seems like the ergonomics are very geared towards doing femoral access. I can lay everything across the patient. The monitors are directly in front of me. Um, the back table is behind me. And um, it's just uh, from a, a standpoint, like, you know, every, everything like my hands and my, my, my line of sight are everything's right directly in front of me, like at a 90 degree angle. Um, we do a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say we do a lot of, but you know, for the, for the uh, intraarterial um, uh uh, cases that we do uh, Y90 specifically, a lot of the catheters that uh, we try and use are uh, short, uh, shorter working length catheters. Like, um, like if we're going to do uh, a mapping, I was always taught, you know, try and decrease the length of your catheters as much as possible. So if you can get like a 65 centimeter sauce and then uh, uh, you know a shorter length Renegade, I think that's 105 or 110, um, you get better injections uh, for your uh, mappings and. I have to admit, I'm a nut about my mapping procedures. And, you know, I think that, you know, using some shorter working length catheters uh, helps you get better injections and better pictures. You have like some special situations where if um, like I can think of a case where it was an occluded celiac and uh, I was thinking it was considering whether we were going to have to go um, uh, via the SMA and, and pancreatic duodenal arcade to, to get to this tumor. Uh, versus uh, what I ended up doing was just pulling a, a Mick, uh, Mickelson catheter 
into the celiac, which was which was uh, completely and chronically occluded. Um, and basically, what I what I do is like I just take the the Mickelson, park it in the occlusion of the the celiac, and then just kind of chip away with the microcatheter system. And then ultimately, you kind of treat like a CTO case. You kind of bust through, and then all of a sudden, you have access into your uh, uh, hepatic arteries and. I'm, I'm sure that you could do this with if you were uh, doing a radial access case, but I've just such a higher level of comfort with the catheters and, um, and, you know, coming from a femoral approach. I understand that is, uh, is Mickelson your go-to for femoral access when you're doing, uh, you know, celiac or SMA selection? No, I almost always use a sauce. Like the only reason I used the Mickelson for that case was, uh, just because, um, a little more stability and it just seems to anchor in. Um, like if, if I had a nut, actually, I think I tried with a sauce to get it originally and it kept popping out every time I tried to probe with the micro catheter and micro wire. Um, so I just use a Mickleton for some added stability. Interestingly for me. So, you know, I've made the switch to, to radial for fibroid embolization, but the only thing that's really keeping me from doing it in cancer therapy is, uh, is just that the barrier is really just having to train and experience you know, nurses and techs who are uh, just really very comfortable with managing femoral access patients. You know, the, the place where I do the majority of uh, my interventional oncology is just a really busy site. And I just can't like, I can't waste like half an hour having to, to set up an arm board and get everything set up a way that they're not used to. I don't even, I don't, really don't even have that excuse because the, the cath lab that I work in, it's a cath lab mixed with cardiology. And so the techs, the nursing staff, everyone is very comfortable with like a, a radial setup. Um, and so, you know, for me, if I were to tell the techs, hey, let's set up for radial, you know, they don't blink an eye. Like they, they'll set up for, for radial, uh, no sweat. And, you know, they'll have the groins prepped in, in, case of, in case of potential crossover. And we use radial access. It's just not my go-to access, when it com- especially when it comes to interventional oncology. It's fair. Jason, are you primarily a radial guy for IO? Um, I use radial whenever possible. Um, it's sort of become my favorite access uh, for a number of reasons, which I'm sure we're going to get into here. Um, but, you know, I just wanted to respond to a couple of things that uh, that Chris had said. I would agree, actually, with both of you that that comfort is key with these procedures. I mean, any any IR is going to tell you that the uh, the outcome of the procedure is directly related to how how comfortable you are with the technique. Um, that goes into, you know, overall radiation dose exposure, contrast volume, um, you know, uh, patient satisfaction as well. I mean, side effects from sedation, you know, we, we load patients up with meds when they're on the table for a long time, you know, they're more likely to get nauseous afterwards and have all, all sorts of side effects. So I agree comfort is key and I'm not going to tell you guys that this was, uh, like a flip the switch kind of a thing when we went from, <laughs> femoral access to, to radial. I mean, there definitely are some, some physical limitations. Um, first off, our rooms also uh, were not uh, designed with any sort of foresight into the fact that we were going to be using uh, radial access at some point, you know, during, during their lifetime. Um, we have some smaller rooms. Uh, we do have one room in particular that's a little larger that we prefer to use the, uh, the, the radial access in whenever possible. The downside is that that room is not equipped with our 3D software. So, mm-hmm. you know, that comes in real handy with these oncology cases. And, uh, you know, if, if, if we're, you know, strictly using the room that's larger uh, for the transradio, we, we obviously don't have the benefit of, um, of, of using that technology. So I, the room layout is, is tough, but we have worked out ways 
to, um, to sort of overcome those limitations. And uh, we can talk a little bit more about that, you know, as, as the conversation progresses. But the other point that I wanted to make was one that, um, you know, I think it's interesting. My preference is for doing mappings and in, in, in doing uh, initial angiographic runs for, for taste, for example. Um, I find that my best contrast injections are obtained when I can actually park a catheter in the proper hepatic artery. Um, so I usually try to use uh, 11-1 catheter or uh, even a C2, although I don't like it as much because the, the tip kind of digs a little. And I'll advance that over a glide and, and sort of, you know, get it down deeper so that my contrast injection is primarily directed at the liver and I'm not getting uh, a contrast aversion to the spleen. Um, so for that reason, I found that it's almost easier and less traumatic to take some of these radial catheters in deeper inside the celiac access because of the angle um, that the catheter accesses the vessel. So, um, you know, that, that's where I think um, there might be a little bit of uh, food for thought in, in room for discussion. Um, as far as uh, uh, other reasons why I prefer transradial, um, we have found in our practice that since we've transitioned over, Oh, um, about four years ago, I think we, we made the transition. Um, it was a learning experience, but the patients that have been with us getting repeat treatments throughout that time markedly prefer the transradial approach in terms of comfort and duration of recovery um, over the, the femoral approach. Um, so I think that, you know, that factor also considered uh, has pushed us to try to use radial uh, as much as possible. Okay. Um, the, the one other thing I will mention, um, since we're talking about limitations with facilities at Brown, uh, Rhode Island hospital, we have a common recovery area that we share with the diagnostic radiologists for all their biopsies and drainages. So there are very, you know, there's limited space when it comes to, uh, beds available for patient recovery. The faster we can get a patient, you know, sort of through the recovery period and, and discharged and onto the next phase of care or home, the better off we are uh, in terms of workflow efficiency. And we found that by using the transradial approach, we've been able to, you know, cut our recovery times by, you know, as much as a third to a half. Um, so we have markedly improved our, our efficiency just by switching over to the radial approach. Wow. Um, again, it's been a learning experience. We've sort of perfected our setup. We weren't, uh, our technologists were not cardiac trained. So it's not like uh, they came with any sort of background knowledge. We've sort of just been piecing this together as we go. Interestingly, I mean, your observation, actually, there's, there's some recent data on it. There's a, a study out of MUSC that was during the January or February issue of JVIR um, comparing transradial versus transfemoral access in uh, liver cancer embolization. And so they took patients uh, who had actually been treated uh, from both radial access and femoral access and uh, they surveyed the patients and it showed um, radial was preferred by the patients and decreased operator radiation exposure, actually. Um, and there were no differences in adverse events, procedure time, contrast usage or, or patient radiation, which I thought was interesting. Um, so how did you learn it? So, you know, like like you guys, uh, when I was in fellowship, this wasn't a big part of IR practice. So I didn't have any specific training during that time. It was really all learned uh, while I was practicing as an attending physician. I started off, you know, first hearing about it, becoming acquainted with it through sort of mini workshops and meetings, talks and stuff at uh, SIR and various other meetings. Um, and then 
it wasn't until there was there was sort of a push from our our Tarumo rep uh, to really start bringing this on board. Um, once we really looked at it as a practice, and again that was about four years ago, there was mounting evidence that um, it was being increasingly used as an access technique uh, in IR, um, sort of across the country. So we said, "Hey, you know what? Let's give it a try." Um, we obviously had to pick. Uh, a few ideal patients um, to start off with. I mean, everybody was a little hesitant. Um, we're accessing a smaller artery here. We know that there are there are complications that can occur. So we were trying to find the ideal patient. And I think that for each one of us in our practice, that first patient that we decided, I mean, we want, we wanted it to be perfect. You know, it was like a young male um, <laughs> that didn't have any atherosclerotic risk factors. I mean, you know, good luck, right? I mean, He's so it, it yeah, it took us a while to kind of, you know, get into it and, and sort of uh, dip our dip our feet into the pool. But once we decided to do it, we had a tremendous amount of support by uh, by our vendor. Um, and really, it started off, we were mostly learning um, from, from Tarumo with the resources that they had. Uh, they have protocols in place. Um, they were very, very uh, helpful in, you know, training our nurses and technologists on the TR band. Um, and sort of, you know, troubleshooting type issues that uh, they had seen in practice with with other providers. So I think that without that support and without that little bit of a push, uh, it, we probably would have been a lot slower to adopt the technique. Hey, Michael, can I okay. jump in and ask a question to Jason? Please. Um, so, so my question, um, whenever you guys were switching over, like you know, making the jump or, or slowly easing over to, to radial access, you know, the, my question is like, how do you have this, the room set up where the monitors are and the patient's arm is? Right. So um, the answer to that question depends on whether or not we want the capability of, uh, of performing a, a 3D sort of uh, expert CT during the case. Uh, um, we initially always start off with the right arm down by the patient's side, the left arm that we access off a little less than 90 degrees. We found that when patients are extended to, to 90 degrees, it's, it's a little more uncomfortable for them. So it's probably something like 70 degrees. Um, the arm is uh, fixed to the arm board, uh, the, the more or less the um, uh, sort of metatarsophalangeal junction there of, of, the, of the hand is sort of wrapped and secured down to the board. And then the wrist itself is prepped and exposed. We will actually lay a table out along the length of that arm board so that we have at least a little bit of a support structure for our, uh, our flush lines and everything that needs to be essentially level and not tugging once that sheath access is in place within the radial artery. Um, what we found is that, you know, table height is, is a consideration. Um, you know, we've sort of prepped our side table that's adjacent to the hand so that we take one of those uh, kind of blue guide wire bowls, flip it over and put it underneath the sterile drape to create a little bit of a pedestal. So everything is uh, more or less flush in, in level. Um, and then there's another table that we put uh, at 90 degrees to that first table, uh, just slightly down toward the patient's feet. So it sort of forms like a little, uh, a little alcove that we stand in. We've got the patient to the left another table to the right and immediately in front of us, we have the out, you know, the outstretched arm with the access. Um, you know, if we're doing 3d reformats or we're doing an, ex an expert CT, we will actually with the catheter in place, move the patient's arm. We'll move it up 
believe it or not. We'll take the arm and we will we'll extend it up so that the arms are are uh, um, you know sort of like as if you were putting your your hands behind your head. They're sort of held in an angle. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found that the catheter, it doesn't move all that much, you know, we have to keep an eye on it while we're adjusting and we do it delicately. But by doing that, we're able to get that, uh, the II to actually do the correct spin, uh, either in propeller format or in a roll format to get the 3d information we need. But, you know, there are various methods that are used out there in practice. I mean, some people are using radial arm boards that, that go alongside the patient, um, the entire time. So they'll access the radial artery and then they'll fold the arm in and, uh, and keep it, you know, in parallel to the body and either reach over the body. So they're working from the, uh, the left side, uh, sorry, the patient's right side, um, or they'll stand on the ipsilateral side and, and work from there. Um, so y- you'll find variations in practice. And I think it's really a matter of preference, but that's the quirky part of the radial axis is finding what you're comfortable with once you learn it. And you may try it a few different ways and say, you know what, I like this way the best. And then, uh, you know, you just roll with it and you'll modify over the course of the first, you know, couple dozen cases you do, you'll tweak things here and there to just make it better and better as you go. I guarantee that when you look at everybody in practice uh, across the board, no one's doing it in identical fashion. You know, they're all sorts of little, uh, uh, little subtleties on how they've they've improved the system for themselves and, and for their plant layout. Well, so I, so I had one more question. So um, whenever we do radial access, we do have the arm out, like you said, maybe not at ninety degrees. That's a bit of a stretch for the patient. Um, but then my my situation is always what to do with my monitors for for whatever reason, and maybe other rooms are different around the country. Is that our monitor setup is it's very much geared towards the the monitors have to be like on the other side uh, of the patient um, that you're working on. Like I'm never able to get the monitors, like if I have the arm uh, abducted to get the monitors in front of me. And so I'm kind of like, as I'm working on the arm, which is, which is abducted, I still have to like turn my head over my left shoulder to see the monitors. Is, is that what you're, you're also doing, Jason? Are you working off a slave monitor? Yeah, actually. So one of our rooms has that identical setup that you're saying where we, we kind of have to pull the monitor up as close to the patient's head as we can, but it's still off to the left. So mm-hmm. as you're working, you can position your body so that, you know, you're you're working on the patient's wrist, but you're more or less sort of, you know, directing your body at a midpoint between the monitor and the wrist. So you're not craning your neck as much during the procedure. It's a little bit of a pain. And to be honest with you, it's not as nice as our other room where we have a slave monitor. The slave monitor is nice because you can just wheel it over and put it right in front of you where you're working. And, you know, you're standing on the other side of the wrist and just looking straight at the monitor. So two different ways we do it. Um, I prefer the slave uh, but I've learned to cope with uh, doing it the other way. I mean, it's it hasn't been. I don't have any neck problems, you know, yet. <laughs> Jason, I know you'd said everybody has a different way of doing this, but would you mind walking us through your approach to radial access when you're doing IO procedures? Sure, absolutely. Um, so obviously, there are, there are a bunch of technical aspects. Uh, patient selection is key, and you know, like I said, when you're first starting out. You want to try to find the ideal patient that's going to have uh, a suitable radial artery diameter, um, unlikely to have any any plaque buildup in the artery or any sort of uh, unforeseen anatomic consideration um, as much as possible. Um, it tends to be younger males, 
that are that are uh, the ideal candidates, uh, particularly those that don't have all those risk factors. But since our patient population um, is is pretty heavily weighted in the HCC realm uh, in IO, we do get a lot of comorbid uh, illness. So um, what we found is that as we have started going uh, with this practice, even patients that we thought were not going to be good candidates turn out to be good candidates. And and we can talk about some of the data toward the end of this discussion um, as far as you know, the relative risk of, of uh, vascular injury uh, based on, on some of the pre-procedure tests and stuff that we do. Um, but what we found is that it, it's not as strict as what you initially think when you're starting. You don't have to be, uh, I hate to say it, as careful as, as you really want to be in the beginning. Um, there's a lot of leeway there, and, and it's relatively rare that you're going to end up with a significant complication that's going to cause the patient uh, long-term harm. Um, but in general, when we're talking about the technical aspects, we always start off with an ultrasound of the forearm while the patient is in recovery. Um, we'll check to make sure that the radial artery is sufficient diameter. Um, I would set the threshold at two millimeters for a minimum diameter, uh, just based on the sheath size that we're putting in there, um, which we'll talk about. Um, but you know, in general, there's also data to support that the complication rates are higher when the uh, radial artery diameter is less than two millimeters. So we measure the artery, we do an ultrasound, we kind of follow the vessel up the forearm, make sure that we can't, you know, see any sort of uh, radial loop or, or extreme tortuosity that might make it a difficult procedure. Um, even if you see a radial loop, there are ways to overcome it. But, you know, again, it may, it may sway you uh, toward using ephemeral access if it's, if it's a complete loop, for example. Um, so once we do the anatomic assessment with ultrasound, we then have to, or we usually, you don't have to, but we do assess the, uh, the completeness of the Palmer arch by doing a uh, Barbeau test. So the Barbeau test, I'm sure you guys are familiar with it, but it's basically uh, an Allen's test used with a pulse oximeter that we place on either the the thumb or the index finger of the hand. Um, We compress the radial artery and observe the pulse ox waveform. Um, In general, you know, the degree of depression of that waveform is going to tell you how well the ulnar artery is perfusing that superficial palmar arch. Um, and you know, there are various types of waveforms just based on the change, a type A or a type B is preferred. Um, we have done a couple type C's and haven't had, uh, any major issues with that yet, but I would say that it's just a handful of patients that we kind of, uh, uh, we run that risk with. Um, so that's sort of the overall assessment. If you've got a Barbo type A or a type B and the radial artery is two millimeters and the ultrasound, at least of the forearm looks pretty good. Um, I'd say it's a go. Um, and then we prep the patient up, bring them into the room. Um, once we do the access, there's, there's a big debate about how you anesthetize the, uh, the uh, access site. Um, to inject lidocaine through a needle, um, you usually are, are running the risk of inciting spasm in the radial artery. And I would say that from a technical standpoint, spasm is the one thing that could ruin your case. So anything you can do to minimize that chance of it occurring is going to, uh, is going to bode well for a more favorable uh, outcome, at least in terms of the access site. So some people are using lidocaine cream on the skin, and I believe there actually have been some studies that have shown that the rate of spasm in the artery is much lower when you're using the topical anesthetic. So if you have access to that, I would recommend using it. 
Um, in addition, uh, there are some people that are putting uh, nitro paste uh, up on the forearm over the radial artery to try to, you know, even incite more vasodilation uh, than what might be seen with the preliminary ultrasound at the beginning um, with the assessment. So, you know, once we, we have the patient prepped, ready to go, um, we, you know, put the local anesthetic on the skin. Uh, you're accessing with a, it's more or less a 20-gauge needle, um, 018 system. I use ultrasound for the access. I like the direct visualization. I'm not doing a through-and-through through, uh, wall puncture. Uh, it's a single wall puncture, um, directly visualizing the tip of the needle the entire time. Uh, once you're in, you get good return. You're, you're threading your 018 wire, and the sheaths that we use are the Terumo glide sheaths. Um, the slender sheaths in particular are designed such that uh, the wall of the sheath is thinner than a standard access sheath that you would use, say, from a femoral approach. By doing that, by, by thinning out that wall, what they've done is they've decreased the outer sheath size by about one French uh, while maintaining the, the inner lumen diameter. So, um, you know, we're essentially using a five French sheath uh, with a smaller outer diameter than what we would be seeing with a five French sheath in the groin. So with a two millimeter radial artery, that still allows for some blood flow around the sheath. Um, the sheath's designed, it's an 018, so it slips in with a nice taper over that 018 wire. And I think that's key because what you don't want to do, um, in fact, the thing you want to avoid at all costs with radial artery access is swapping out catheters, sheaths. Um, that's certainly going to send your artery into spasm. So it's nice that they've designed a sheath that inserts over an 018 system. So it's a single, you know, smooth insertion. It's also hydrophilic on the outside. So that facilitates the access as well. Um, once we get into the system and we've got uh, good blood return through the sheath, we'll then put in a uh, medicinal cocktail that um, is designed to reduce the risk of perisheath thrombosis and also, you know, stimulate some vasodilation. Uh, we use 2.5 milligrams of verapamil, uh, 200 mics of nitro, and 5,000 units of heparin. Um, we use a full-dose heparin instead of the low-dose 3,000 units. Uh, there is some data to show that uh, radial artery occlusion rates are a lot lower if, you've, uh, if you're using the full-dose heparin. So 5,000 units of heparin, 200 mics of nitro, 2.5 of verapamil, and then we hemodilute that. We will draw up uh, in a uh, 20 to 30 cc syringe from the sheath, uh, patient's own blood to dilute the medication, and then slowly administer that back through the sheath over the course of about two minutes. Um, that's mainly to prevent the, uh, that burning sensation that the verapamil can cause, um, that can incite some spasm. It can cause some anxiety in the patient who at this point is probably just, you know, crossing over that threshold into uh, conscious sedation. Um, once you've got the cocktail in, um, you know, you're, you're kind of good to go at that point. Um, I will mention that there is, there is some data out there that, Instead of giving the nitroglycerin through the sheath, uh, some practices are using sublingual, sublingual nitro, and they've shown that they can increase the radial artery diameter size by about five millimeters without a deleterious effect on blood pressure by giving it sublingual. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting point. We don't do that, but, you know, it's something that uh, others have adopted in practice. Um, so again, you know, your cocktail's in, you're ready to go, sheets in. Uh, now it's a matter of just picking your guide catheter. And as I mentioned before, this is actually a pretty critical decision. You know, you want to know ahead of time the shape that you want to use. Uh, you want to make sure your inner luminal diameter is appropriate. 
because once you have a guide catheter in and you're, you're down in the aorta, there's no way you're going to be able to swap this thing out for a different one without causing spasm in that artery. I mean, I've tried it. Uh, it's never worked out for me. Um, so I would, I would just say that as a, as a point of fair warning that, you know, you want to give it some thought, uh, as far as a guide catheter is concerned. Um, I think guide catheters for us have been a little bit of a, uh, a process of trial and error. Uh, we first started out when we were doing this using the Terumo catheters because we had the support of the rep there and we sort of just purchased all this stuff as a, as a package deal. Uh, the Sarah, the Jackie catheters, uh, they've got a great shape. Um, they definitely move well. They respond well to torque. Um, what we found was the problem with those catheters, uh, the inner lumen was not hydrophilic. And it was actually just about at the threshold of uh, what you would expect the inner lumen of a five French catheter to be. So if we were doing treatments where we wanted to use uh, an anti-reflux catheter like the Surefire device, um, we found that in passing that device through the catheter, it would move well until it got to the tip and then it would sort of get bound up. And, you know, maybe one out of three times it would pass through when you're able to do the treatment. And the other two times it would uh, it would bind up on the fabric of the uh, the um, anti-reflux umbrella and just sort of destroy the uh, the Surefire catheter. So that was no good. Um, and, you know, that's also when we learned that you can't swap out catheters uh, without causing a lot of spasm in the radial artery. So, you know. Just to reemphasize, this process of, of introducing radial artery access in our practice was not, you know, exactly smooth sailing the whole way. But the idea is that you learn from the mistakes of others. And, and you know, when you're implementing it in your own practice, um, you know, we've, we've got some knowledge now that we can add, uh, add to the, uh, the database to help you do it well. Uh, the launcher catheter is one that we kind of found with the help of Surefire uh, because we were looking for a catheter that had a slightly larger inner lumen diameter um, with uh, roughly equivalent outer diameter. So these launcher catheters are known for their uh, larger inner lumen. Um, we talked before about getting good injection rates, you know, for diagnostic mappings and stuff. These catheters are, are actually fantastic for that. Um, I mean, you can get seven centimeter per, uh, or seven uh, cc per second injections through them without any problem whatsoever. So um, you're certainly going to be able to do whatever you need to do from a flow rate standpoint and from a, uh, from a pressure standpoint with that catheter. So long-winded answer, I apologize, but I, you know, I just, that was sort of like soup to nuts, how we go through the initial approach. Can we talk really quick? Um, like Jason, I'd love to hear about y'all's, um, what's y'all's protocol for your, your TR band. Sure. Absolutely. Um, we've sort of modified the, uh, the recommended, uh, Terumo protocol. Um, they've got one that they have on their website, but in general, what we do is, <clears throat> when we're putting the TR band on, and let me just start with that first off, because this is a clear plastic band where uh, there's a green marker on the uh, the inflatable balloon portion of the band that's supposed to be situated right over the point where your uh, needle has accessed the radial artery. So it tends to be slightly distal um, or sorry, slightly proximal to where your your skin incision is, is actually made on the wrist if, if you do make a nick. Um so you're positioning this balloon, and and what you're doing is you're you're as you're removing the sheath, you inflate the balloon with almost a it's pretty much a maximum amount of air. I mean, we put in close to 18 cc's of air uh, to begin with, uh, but then you know as you slowly release the pressure from this balloon, you're supposed to be watching for bleeding from the access site. 
Um, once it bleeds, it can be really, really tough to see what's going on under that band. So what we found is uh, when we set up the TR band initially um, and we inflate it, we take a little four by four and we fold it over on itself and we kind of just tuck it in uh, on the distal side of the band uh, right adjacent to that green dot right near the access site where the bleeding is going to occur. And what that does is when it, when you do get some bleeding, um, it, the, the gauze actually just wicks the blood away and it doesn't sort of create this whole smudge in the window where you can't really tell what's going on anymore. So that was a trick that I actually learned from, from one of my fellows, uh, who, who had done some, uh, some radial access, uh, in residency and, and we've sort of adopted it universally. So I'll throw that out there as a little pearl, but, uh, in general, um, when we put this uh, TR band on, we're following the standard protocol where you inflate it with maximum amount of air. You slowly re- release that air uh, until you see the bleeding. And then you're supposed to put in uh, about three to five cc's of air uh, in addition to that just to achieve uh, non-occlusive pressure on that radial artery. Um, we note how much air is left in the balloon, the total volume. We let the nurse know that. And then our protocol is that the, the band will stay on continuously for an hour. Uh, we don't peak. We don't do anything to it for an hour. Um, at one hour, um, we take out our first uh, 2cc uh, volume of air. We do 2cc's every 10 to 15 minutes. And I, I give a range there because... Um, I think it depends on a lot of factors. Um, uh, one of them being, you know, how much heparin we actually gave during the case. I'm one, I'm the guy that, you know, I give the one dose of heparin in the beginning and assuming that this case is going to be an hour to an hour and a half or whatever, I don't bother redosing the heparin, but some people do. Um, so if, if, if the patient has gotten more heparin, they may decide, well, I want to go longer intervals. I'm going to go every 15 minutes with the, with the two cc's of air. So, you know, that, that's the rationale behind the, uh, uh, the, uh, the range there. But in general, I think most people are doing 10 minute increments. Um, we do two cc's every 10 minutes. Uh, the nurses are trained to take the band down. If they see bleeding, they put the volume back in and we let it sit up again for another, you know, whatever it is, 10 to 15 minutes before we give it another try. Um, after about another, I'd say 45 minutes to an hour, you're essentially, you've got the, the band completely deflated. Uh, the, the artery is hemostatic. We remove the band. And so within two hours of the intervention, most patients are, uh, are, you know, ready to go. I mean, the access site's clean. Um, they've been, you know, sitting up in bed, eating, drinking, they've used the bathroom already cause they haven't had to lay flat. So just, you know, to summarize an hour up, uh, and then every 10 to 15 minutes, uh, we take out two cc's of air until essentially the band is uh, deflated and then we just remove it. And I like Jason's line about, you know, lidocaine can sometimes excite uh, vasospasm. Um, but I, I found that um, uh, one, of, one of the tips I've seen in the journal is uh, if you use like an imlocrine, which is like a combination between lidocaine and prilocaine, um, I think there's, it's 40 milligrams imlocrine. And then Jason also mentioned either the sublingual nitro or you can do uh, 30 milligrams nitro paste. And you put both those like the imlocrine and the nitro paste over the wrist and you cover that with a tegaderm about 30 minutes to an hour before the procedure. I think that doing those things on the front end are going to set up maybe the uh, neophyte radial accessor uh, for success if, if they're looking to you know start out with radial access. Yeah, I would I would agree 100 percent on that. And uh, that's actually a very good point about, you know, setting that stuff up and getting it going, you know, about 30 minutes before the procedure. I think it uh, it does go a long way. 
so so one of my things about radial access that I was open to to pick Jason's brain about and and maybe debunk or maybe or flesh it out a little bit more is I think a lot of people worry about like even the small risk of CVA or, or stroke or even TIA. Um, and I, I didn't know if Jason have any anecdotal experience or if you want to speak a little bit to the literature about, you know, what are the actual chances of seeing any kind of, of permanent neurologic defect, you know, following radial access for a, for a below the diaphragm case. So I would say, uh, operative uh, phrase there being permanent neurological defect, exceedingly low. We know that uh, the rates of silent stroke are actually fairly high. Um, They can be as high as about, I think, 18% is what the literature says based on MRI data. Um, You know, that a lot of that comes from cardiac catheterization, though. So I don't know that we know what the true incidence of subclinical stroke is for for, uh, you know, interventions performed from the left arm below the diaphragm. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that these these tend to be these microembolic type things that show up only on diffusion weighted imaging. Patients are not uh, at all uh, symptomatic from it. Um, So I think that the the risk of stroke um, is I think it's just overplayed. Um, I, I, you know, knock on wood, have not seen um, any clinically significant stroke in practice yet from from any of the patients that I've done. Um, I did have one patient that uh, was lethargic from dehydration after a procedure, uh, went to an outside hospital, um, and because she was, uh, you know, lethargic, they thought maybe she had some neurological symptoms. They ended up doing an MR, and it did show that she had some little punctate uh, areas of diffusion restriction uh, in the parietal lobes. Um, but again, I mean, from a neurologic standpoint, no motor deficit, no sensory deficit. I mean, she, she was clinically asymptomatic from it. So um, it, it's there, it's a risk. Um, but, you know, with appropriate heparinization, uh, you know, even that one time standard dose of 5,000, I, I just, you know, I, my belief is that we're, we're sort of overplaying this and uh, it shouldn't be as much of a concern as some people make it out to be. Since we're on the topic of complications, I mean, we have seen um, radial artery occlusions uh, post-procedure. Um, you know, they, they're all clinically asymptomatic with the exception of one in our practice that was not. Um, I think that, uh, you know, they, they report radial artery occlusion at a rate of, I think it's about four to 10% or something um, based on the cardiac cath data. But they do say that the use of standard dose heparin, 5,000 units as opposed to the 3,000 unit dose of heparin at the beginning of the case is associated with lower rates of vessel occlusion. I'm convinced that the cases that we have seen where the vessel went down, um, although the patients were asymptomatic, it does preclude access from that artery uh, later on to do additional treatments, unless you want to sort of go through the, uh, the uh, sort of creative gesture of sort of tunneling through there and, and using it anyway, which I know some places do. Um, so in general, I mean, you could say there is some risk to the patient in that uh, it may sort of, you know, relegate them to a, a femoral approach for all their subsequent interventions. But from a symptomatic standpoint, it's very rare that these patients end up with hand ischemia. But it's great that, you know, we have these forums like this to discuss it because, you know, I also looked through the literature prior to this uh, discussion. It's amazing how much of this is heavily weighted to the cardiac cath, you know, data. And we don't have a lot lot of it uh, to go on from uh, from an IR standpoint with below the diaphragm intervention. So I think there's room there for more study. Um, but I think that what we're going to find is that uh, we've sort of put a lot of emphasis on uh, on uh, concerns that, uh, 
may not be legitimate in the long term. Well, guys, that was awesome. Thank you for taking the time to join us for this discussion. And uh, of course, a special thanks to today's sponsor, Surefire Medical. Surefire's pressure-directed infusion system improves selective delivery of embolic material and minimizes non-target embolization. Learn more at surefiremedical.com. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us, and we'll catch you on the next one.